Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. I love hearing the stories of what God is doing, working himself out in our lives together in community. And really, that is the heart of Romans and, uh, and why we are diving so deep in this beautiful, rich, complex, challenging book. So you're going to want a Bible this morning. If you have a Bible, go on and open up to the book of Romans. If you need one, we have some folks that will walk around. Just slip up a hand, and they'll get a Bible to you so that you can follow along. And we'll be here in Romans chapter 1 over the next several months. We'll just kind of be making our way through, uh, through this letter of Paul uh, to this early church, just chapter by chapter as we go through. But we began looking last week at the context of this letter. As you study any book of the Bible, to understand the context is critically important. To understand who this is being written to. And what the Holy Spirit, God, through his Holy Spirit, through his apostle, was trying to do uh, to convict or challenge or invite, uh, to call forth, in order that we can begin to recognize, okay, how does that word from then apply into our lives right now? That God's word, living and active, is not just something that happened in the past, it's something that is happening, that we, a story that we find ourselves in. So we recognize that Paul was a man on a mission. He was an apostle, a sent one, a man on a mission with a message, and that message was the gospel. This proclamation of the kingdom of God in the resurrected Jesus Christ. That he's writing to Rome, this corrupt, divided uh, uh, empire that was uh, pressing its worldview on the, the known globe out to the edges of the empire, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome with this proclamation that Caesar is Lord. That if you want security and peace in your life, if you want to be taken care of, then worship this God Caesar because he is the one that can give you what you need. And in the, the shadow of this massive global empire, this little movement began to emerge that claimed a different king, a different allegiance, that proclaimed with their lives and even with their deaths that no, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the true King of kings, and that there's only one unshakable kingdom, and it's not Rome, it's the kingdom of God. And this movement began to emerge and became, began to draw into it both Jew and Gentile, Romans and Greeks, people from all over the world, from all kinds of different backgrounds, slave and freed people, uh, the rich and poor. And as they congealed in this little church there in Rome, wrestling through, what does it mean to follow Jesus in our world? Paul writes them this letter. And he tells them in verse, uh, if we look at verse 9, that I long to see you. There's just something about Rome that has been burning in Paul's heart for a long time. In fact, he'll eventually, in Acts, we find out he'll get himself arrested to try to get to Rome. And he wants to get to Rome. He knows there's something there that is powerful for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth, as Jesus had told them. The great commission that he'd given him just right before he ascended, when Jesus told his disciples to make disciples of all the nations— baptizing them in my name, teaching them all the things that I taught, and I'll be with you. And Paul, burning to fulfill that commission, knew he had to get to Rome. 
But he says, I want to come there so that I can impart to you a spiritual gift so that you may be strengthened. Just even there thinking about the role of spiritual gifts, even in unique. Sometimes we can be fascinated with, with the, the spiritual gifts as like or self-discovery or personality inventories or the Enneagram or whatever it might be. And it's like, I want to know myself. I, I, wa I want to experience the fullness of life. But we find in Paul is that the role of spiritual gifts isn't for our own power. It's that we could strengthen others. It's what God wants to do through our lives for the sake of the people around us. I want to strengthen you, not to impress you, but that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I love that phrase, mutually encouraged, circled in my Bible. That all true mission is mutual. That every person that you meet has something for you and you have something for them. In our world, there's no such thing as haves versus have-nots. <laughs> what Romans makes incredibly clear is that we are all haves and we are all have-nots. Every person we encounter, there's a blessing and a gift for us to receive. And every person we encounter, there's a blessing and a gift for us to give. What would it look like to begin living our lives with that kind of intentionality? I want to be mutually encouraged, Paul says. And I want, verse 15, I want to reap a harvest among you, as among the rest of the Gentiles, that Paul is seeing what was a, a formerly Jewish movement beginning to reach all people all over the world, as the prophets had declared years, hundreds of years before, that the work of God wasn't just for the children of Abraham, but was for all nations. But he doesn't want to just stop in Rome. For him, Rome, yes, it's an, it's an important destination, but it is not the end. It's a means to an end. If you want to throw that map up there. Paul knew that his real desire, and he'll, he'll uh, more um, explicitly express this in chapter 15, is he wants to launch from Rome out to Spain. And if you look at the Roman Empire, all that that is in red, the little green dot is Judea or Jeru in Jerusalem, where, uh, where Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ministry all happen. And from that little movement with a handful of people had begun to spread. And Paul making his way to Rome, you can see the little boot of Italy over there, the capital. But where he's trying to get to on the far left side, Hispania, he wants to get to Spain, to the edges of the empire, to see that gospel advance. In the same way for grace, we want to be a church. We're inviting you, if, if you come feel led to become part of this family, we want to be a church that empowers, that launches, that sends, both across the street and around the world. But just like Paul knew for the Romans, for them to launch the kind of mission potential that was in the soil in their city, they first had to come together. As one unified people, united in Christ, and centered around the gospel. And the same thing is true for us. That for us to fully live into the plans that God has for us, the purposes that God has for us as a church family in this little city called Monroe. The things that God is stirring up in the soil of this place will require us to come together, centered around 
the gospel of Jesus Christ that unites us in a kingdom that reigns over every other kingdom. And to get there, Paul has to deal with some things in the same way that my prayer and hope for us, for me personally, and for my family, and for my friends, is that we would wrestle in this text in Romans with what does it mean to live in the power of the gospel? And what does it look like as a community of people who are defined by that reality? I mean, for us at Grace, it's why, as you know, Brandon was just sharing, it's why we do Unique, why we do the, the uh, learning community on hearing God. We want you to be confident in your identity in Christ, secure, knowing the good works that God prepared in advance for you to do. Whether you're a, a plumber or a third grade teacher, to begin to view your work and your life through the lens of God's kingdom mission. What would it look like to show up in your cubicle or in your classroom every day with that sense, God, you are doing something here through me. You've prepared good works in advance for me to do. This is what Paul's beginning with in his letter to the Romans. Or whether you desire to launch something new out into the world. We want to be a church that fosters that kingdom dream in your heart. Whether that's a, a nonprofit, a, a bike shop, or a community garden, or just simply I want to mentor the seventh graders on my son's football team. What is that thing burning inside of you? It's why we have residents and fellows, these young pastors that we're raising up and leading to send out. But it's also as a church, this is I'm just giving you context for why Romans matters and that we get Romans as a church, is that God placed in our, the heart of this church that we would be a church that plants other churches. Just like Paul knew, if I can get to Rome and if you can get this gospel thing, we can plant some churches from here. We can get to Spain. We can get to those barbarians that, uh, that Rome hasn't even reached yet. He uses that word barbarians, by the way. And, and the, the literal uh, Greek there for barbarians just means mumblers. In other words, people that spoke a language that you didn't understand. It came to mean later on, uh, as they took uh, that word barbarian, to mean bearded ones. Because apparently the wild ones of the wor world are the ones that mumble and have beards. So I feel like I'm doing okay. But we want to be a church that plants churches. In the same way that Grace Monroe was planted out of Grace Snellville, we believe that God is, is stirring in our hearts to go plant other churches like we were planted. With that said, I, I do want to celebrate and, and invite you to be praying that, that uh, as we've shared that vision, that we want to be a church that plants churches just like Paul's vision for Rome, was, is uh, that God has begun stirring in Brandon and his wife Rena a desire to, to be potentially those sent out from Grace Monroe to go plant a church. And in fact, this week, I invite you to pray uh, that Brandon and Rena will head to Indianapolis along with another one of our executive pastors at uh, Grace Athens, who's feeling that same calling, that same stirring to go plant another church. And they'll be a part of a church planning, a pretty intense assessment to begin uh, praying through what could that look like. And so invite you into that process with Brandon and Rena as a church as we look to see what is God stirring in them and what's God stirring in us that he's doing here in Monroe that could be extended out just in the same way that what Paul is trying to do is unite the, the people in that little church in Rome to become a powerhouse sending point for mission in the world. But to get there, we must be a church 
Paul saying to the Romans, you must be a people rooted in the gospel. With Jesus Christ as Lord, our primary allegiance, with the gospel as our focus and our drive. Verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, this good news of God. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in the righteousness, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And notice the emphasis is not just simply, and we talked about this last week, so I won't get into it. But the point of Romans, despite the way it's been uh, taught predominantly in the evangelical Western church for the last hundred years, is not primarily about personal salvation. Though it does deal with personal salvation. It's about God creating a unified people through the gospel of grace and the working of the Spirit. The emphasis isn't on just simply salvation, but salvation to everyone. And that there's a trust required in the work of God that applies to each person no matter where they come from. That there's no other path forward apart from Jesus Christ. And this is good news. That this gospel, this announcement of the kingdom of God is available to every person, regardless of how religious they are, regardless of where they were born, or who their family is, the baggage that they carry, or the amazing things they've done with their life, that the gospel of God is available to every person. But to understand this good news, we must first deal with some bad news. It's like that great question when somebody says to you, okay, man, I got, I got good news and bad news. Which one do you want first? It's like, for the love, just tell me the bad news. Well, that's where Paul goes. So here we go. Verse 18. After making this announcement, the power of God is one who believes. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what is known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The wrath of God is revealed. Now notice first that this is not a disconnected thought. It's not like Paul's like talking about the salvation, the power of God, and it's like a totally different train of thought. But he's flowing from that into this wrath being revealed. That word there, orge, means boiling anger. It's not just a blind rage, but it's a righteous anger of God. In the Old Testament, the wrath of God 
was connected to this idea that your very existence is at stake. The destructive power and the irresistible force of the divine anger. The prophets compared it to a, a consuming fire, to storms that wash away. Like, if you remember those uh, tsunamis, that these massive waves just came in and just wiped out cities. They used that language, the power of God in this, the wrath of God. It's like the, the prophets uh, use uh, the image of like drinking a cup of poison. Used as a warning about foreign armies that were invading and destroying. Also in the Greco-Roman world, there was this ancient understanding that the wrath of God usually resulted in punishment and therefore must be appeased. In the, in the uh, Roman understanding, it was the cause of natural disasters, disease, pestilence, drought, floods, illness. The evils of this world, they, they believed to be because of the wrath of God. So both the Romans and the Jews, who Paul is writing to, would have understood and accepted this idea. The displeasure of the divine for the ways that mankind has fallen short of his decrees and his desires. And the Jewish understanding, Paul's understanding, that the wrath of God was against anything that was in violation of his lordship, of neglecting the worship of him, of not listening and obeying. The wrath of God as the onslaught of the holy God, asserting and establishing his absolute claim to dominion. In other words, that God was king, and therefore anything that rebelled against his authority evoked his wrath. His powerful, divine anger. But in the Jewish, in the Old Testament, there was a, another layer to God's wrath. And that was that God's wrath was not in opposition to, but was deeply rooted in God's love, God's covenant faithfulness. I'll say that again. That in the Old Testament, God's wrath was not in opposition to, but was rooted in God's love and his covenant faithfulness. One scholar writes, In relation to the people of God, the wrath of Yahweh has a very profound basis in the fact that it is proclaimed as an expression of the wounded, holy love of Yahweh as a reaction against the ingratitude and the unfaithfulness of Israel. At the back of every individual prophetic charge, whether it refers to their forms of worship or to social injustice, to a policy which trusts in armaments and alliances, or even to the worship of other gods, there stands finally the one great complaint, namely, that the people have forgotten its God, turned from him, and despised his love. This is the deepest root of the concept of wrath. And in this light, one can understand the overwhelming force of the message. It is Yahweh's wounded love which awakens his wrath. Say that one more time. It is Yahweh's wounded love which awakens his wrath. That God created his people to be an intimate covenant relationship with him. That he extended his presence and his power to them. 
And they turned against him and away from them. And his wrath is awakened against the, the things that, that hurt and wound and destroy the people that he loves. That his choosing of mankind, his desire for loyalty and obedience, is rooted in his unfailing faithful, eternal love. And one of the big differences between God's anger, God's wrath, and human wrath is that it's not helpless. It's not powerless. Uh, have you ever had that experience when you've been just, like, really upset about something? Like, just totally, like, everything in you is just boiling, and you're completely helpless to do anything about it? Like, like the mechanic comes to you, and you know that he is absolutely pulling one over on you and throws all these things in front of you and everything in you is like, are you kidding me? Like, th this is not fair, this is not right, but there is nothing I can do about it right now. That helpless, powerless feeling in our own anger at times. When we stand with somebody that we love or in a relationship where they've done something that, that has absolutely just wrecked our hearts, but there's nothing that we can do to change what they are doing. And yet God is not helpless. He's not powerless. Another big difference between God's anger and human anger is that God's wrath, as, as we said, is of wounded love, of his desire for the best for his people, his desire for relationship and connection with his people, whereas human anger is most often aroused by self-seeking. In other words, I don't get what I want, and it makes me mad. I didn't get my way, and it upsets me. With God, it is I want for you, and you are destroying yourself. And I am burning in my anger and my jealousy. And what Romans makes clear is that there's a very real and present destruction occurring as people persist in their own ungodly behavior, the ways that they fall short of God's design and desires. Verse 20 says that they are without excuse. So why? Because the evidence of God is plain to be, seen, to be seen, Paul says. In other words, that we can walk out into the world in his, in, in his infinite power and creative beauty and majesty is worthy to be praised. That there is a power that is higher than we are. That there is, that there is a divine that created this world that we are not the center of the universe. But even seeing the evidence that there is a God that we belong to and were created by something bigger and more powerful than we are, they did not honor him. In other words, they did not give him his due worth and his value or give thanks to him. But instead, they became futile in their thinking, foolish in their hearts, darkened and deceived. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And what did these fools do? Well, they made three really bad trades. When I was a little kid, uh, uh, we used to trade baseball cards. I don't know if you remember uh, 
base, yeah, and I didn't know anything about baseball, which is a problem when you get into baseball card trading. And, uh, and so I would like, hear of these guys, and I would think that they're amazing, and I would end up like trading these no-name players just because I, I thought that they looked cool for some like famous up-and-coming all-star. So my uh, Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card, which would be actually worth something now, I traded for a, uh, a Don Mattingly. Anyway, if you know, anyway, I traded terribly all the time and got worthless cards for things that would have been something. Well, here in Rome, I was thinking about that, that exchange, that, uh, those terrible trades, because three different times Paul uses the language of they exchanged. They exchanged this for this. The, these fools exchanged. And what did they exchange? What are those three great exchanges? Verse 23, the glory of the immortal for the mortal. Verse 25, the truth of God for a lie. And verse 26, natural relations for those contrary to nature. So the immortal God for mortal images. Claiming to be wise, they became fool. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It's the idolatry that we're familiar with in the ancient world. We can throw that picture up there. I don't know if any of you have watched the new Marvel series, uh, um, Moon something. Moon Knight. Wow, y'all know Marvel better than the Bible, maybe. Uh, just kidding. But am I? Now, I was actually thinking about it the other day. I was like, how many hours of my life have I spent watching Marvel movies? And then I realized, how many hours of my life have I spent studying the Anyway, we won't go there. But uh, so, so the images, I mean, so we look at these idols, and it is, I mean, from our perspective, pretty foolish, right? Like, why would you bow down and devote yourself to obviously graven images? Some artist, some, some maker made these images, and, and people would place them in their homes or up in temples as objects of worship with the hope that somehow appeasing these idols that represented these gods would secure their lives, would take care of their families. Maybe if they don't have children, would give them a child. Maybe if their crops were struggling, would give them a harvest. But they would worship these, these gods in the hopes that they would somehow take care of their life, somehow make sure that they were secure and safe somehow give purpose and meaning and make life worth living. And we look at that and we say, how foolish. Who would ever worship anything created to look like an animal? And so I was trying to think about how could that apply in our world today? And nothing came to mind. You know, they say that if we want to know where our worship is, the two places to look are where we spend our time and our money. But also the things that we're hoping will bring security in our lives. I mean, it's kind of a joke. You know, no one's actually worshiping uh, the dogs, raising their hands and doing whatever he says. But, you know, that doesn't happen. Their lives are ruined. If it doesn't, victory is not theirs. But, you know, we're way above that in our world today. But maybe there's some other animals that we worship, like elephants and donkeys and candidates and other creepy things. 
Who are we looking to to bring security and life? What are we trusting our future in? What are we, what is our life wrecked by if we don't get our way? If our idols are revealed to be the shaky foundation that they stand on, if there's a power that all of a sudden we realize is powerless and it feels like we are lost in it, then maybe we have set something up as an idol in our life. Where are the things that we're going to try to discern how to navigate this world? Who are we listening to? God made it very clear from the beginning that his biggest desire for his people is that we would be a people that learn to hear and follow his voice. And from the very beginning of scripture in Genesis chapter 3, we find that the, that the downfall of man, man became when we began to listen to other voices. We began to elevate other voices. And so maybe we don't have wooden or stone statues in our closets, but what are the other voices that we listen to? Where are we going to figure out what is good and what is right and true? You go to the next one. What have we exchanged resembling mortal man and birds. I thought it was funny that there's a bird on there. And animals and creeping things. Are we that far removed from Paul's indictment of humanity? You can take that off. So the so the first exchange, exchanging the glory of God. For man-made images. We also understand, I mean, in the Jewish world, there was only one God, and he was an invisible God. He couldn't be seen. That's why you don't make graven images, because you don't bow to anything made by man. There's only one God. The Jews were unique in their worship of, or their understanding, or bringing into the world uh, God bringing the world through the Jews, this idea of monotheism, that there's only one creator God that reigns over everything, not many gods that most people believed in at the time. The, the, the Greeks were actually unique, and they shifted the worldview. And, what they, and, and the, the Greco-Roman worldview called Hellenism, the one major shift, the, the big change that they made in the way that the world understood how we relate to to the world and to one another is that the ancient world understood that whether you believed it was a god or multiple gods that mankind was at their mercy and the world was run by them and for them and they looked to the gods for help and for understanding for wisdom and for uh, a sense of purpose and place and identity and belonging the greeks for the first time said that no we don't look to the gods to understand life we look to man in fact, the, the, the great uh, the quote of the Greek philosophers was that, the man, that man is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all things. And that if we want to understand what we're supposed to do or who we're supposed to be, or to judge what is good and what is bad, what is evil and what is delightful, what is right or what is wrong, that measure is in the heart of man. And that Hellenistic worldview 
has saturated our Western world ever since. And even though we may worship God, at the end of the day, so often it is what I think that really matters, what I feel that really determines what is true. That man is the measure of all things. So the second great exchange is the truth of God for a lie. Paul is intentionally echoing the creation story. Genesis 1, 26. That God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. In other words, that God is not created in the image of man, but man is created in the image of God. That we get our, our identity and our being as a reflection of him and our sense of purpose and place in this world, reflecting who he is out into the world, not who we are out into the world. And that from the beginning, God had said that if you eat from the tree of knowledge, you will die. If you determine on your own to figure out the best way to live life, that road leads to death. If you turn your back on the creator of life, you're going to get death. The serpent comes in, the first lie that is planted that Paul is hearkening back to. When the serpent says, if you eat from the tree, you will not die but you will become like God. You don't need God. You can be God. You can decide for yourself what is right or wrong. You can decide for yourself what is, what is true or good for you. You can make God in your image. You can be God. And what we see from that point forward, from both the old... The, entirety of the Old Testament, but all of human history is pointed that when we make ourselves God, when we place ourselves on his rightful throne, when we set ourselves as the center of the universe, all that we do is create chaos and pain and violence, and we wound ourselves and we wound those around us, that our self-protective and, and self-desiring impulses end up turning on ourselves and poisoning our lives and poisoning this world. And we don't have to look far. We can step back for just a second and look at the headlines or look at the story of our lives and see the evidence of when I make myself a God, I only bring heartbreak and pain. And we multiply that over thousands of years and billions of people, and what do we have? The world that we live in. And so Paul says that God gave them up. Each one of these great exchanges is followed by a release. That God lets them walk the path that they've chosen. God lets us experience, to taste the fruit that we've chosen to eat. And so God gave them over to impurity and the lusts of their heart, to the dishonoring of their bodies. God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so make it clear 
that in this passage, Paul is not saying that these things are what incurred God's wrath. What he's saying is their exchange of the truth of God for a lie resulted in these things. This world that we live in is not what is stirring up God's wrath. The, the, the world that we live in is the result of the choices that we have made. And that the root of this brokenness is the ways that we have walked away from God and placed ourselves in the center of, our thr of the throne of our lives and humanity on the throne of the universe. And we have watched the dissolution of our hearts, our minds, and our bodies ever since. So the root cause is a lie, and the results, for this reason, God gave them up. To dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now this is a passage that is hotly debated in our world today. And there's a few things that I want to give us as a church as we process what Paul is saying here. The first is this, that Paul is giving a, a sweeping indictment of the brokenness of man and the sin of humanity. He is not pastorally walking somebody through the brokenness of their lives or the difficulty of the situations that they face. He's not discipling somebody into wholeness and freedom. And this passage has been used in some really ugly and painful ways. And Paul is naming the outcome of the, the choices of mankind. He is not isolating individual sins that are highlighted or heightened or better or worse than any other. The other is this, that Paul is not addressing questions in this passage that we are asking in 2022. He's not talking about gay marriage. He's not talking about gender identity or confusion. He's not talking about sexual preferences. What Paul is dealing with here is not the same thing that we are wrestling with as a church and as followers of Jesus in our world today. Now, the Bible does give some indications of what it means to follow God, or God's design for our sexuality. And because this is such a big issue, even though it's not what Paul's trying to do here, I do want to say that the biblical model and what we believe as a, as a grace family of churches, 
is that what the Bible affirms as God's design for sexuality is that sexual intimacy was created by God to be enjoyed solely in the context of covenant marriage between a man and a woman. That all sexual intimacy is reserved for that covenant relationship. But at the same time, we recognize that we live in a very real and complex world and ministry context where we are learning how to best share the good news of Jesus with every person, regardless of sexual orientation. And that all people live in this broken but beautiful world. And that all people are longing to discover love and relationship and wholeness. And we unapologetically believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life towards that wholeness. And so our primary focus is not on sexuality. Our primary focus is on wholeness in Christ, which encompasses our sexuality, but also emotionally and relationally. That God is working in every human being to move us towards wholeness and freedom. And that sexuality from the beginning of time has been bent and distorted from God's design and his plan. And it expresses itself in a whole lot of ways. And yes, unfortunately, the church over the last however long has focused on one way. But every one of us in some way are broken sexually. Every one of us in some way are confused sexually. What does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? What does it mean to live in wholeness with God? And the other thing about this passage is that when we want to focus on somebody else's sin or struggle, we are missing the whole point of what Paul is saying. Because he goes on to list a whole lot of things that apply to a whole lot of us. We want to focus on sexuality, and then he talks about envy. We want to talk about sexual behavior, and then he talks about slander. About the way that we use our words to hurt one another, or to oppress, or to wound. The ways that we undermine people, the ways that we belittle people, the ways that we wound people. That we are gossips, insolent, prideful. We invent evil, that we're disobedient, we're foolish, that we lack faith. That every one of us stands broken and lost before God. And that, every, and that Jesus' invitation is into wholeness and freedom that is a lifelong journey. And I could look at your life and I could say, dude, that guy really struggles with pride. What I might not know is that what God is actually working out in that person is their struggle with envy or greed. I can't tell for anybody unless I know that person what God is working out in them. And that process towards wholeness and freedom is a lifelong journey. I also know this, that God never intended our sexuality to be our primary identity marker. And we have elevated sex in our culture to idolatry status. That the most important thing about you is what gender you are, what sexual preferences you have, what sexual behavior you're engaged in, and that what is right for you is what feels good for you. 
And what God is saying is you are so much more than your sexuality. And you matter so much more to me than your desires and your impulses. And I will walk with you and I love you every step of the way from this point forward until you die and never give up on you and never leave you. And we are called to be a church that embodies that kind of love for every person, including ourselves, because we are all broken messes on this journey towards wholeness in Christ. Amen? We stand guilty before God, and what do we do with that guilt? I mean, often we deny it. We push it away, we push it down. Unfortunately, often the things that we most despise or fear in somebody else are actually the very things that we most hate in ourselves. I get really worked up about the way that that person uh, belittles other people because I'm afraid that I'm actually a jerk sometimes. Or we justify it. That humans are amazing at rationalizing our sin. That's why we need each other. There are things that we're going through in our, in, the, in our heads that make total sense to us. Of why things should be okay or we should do things that we know are wrong. But as soon as we say them out loud, it's like, that's the dumbest thing that I've ever said. Why would I think that that was a good idea? But somehow when temptation percolates in the back of our brain, we have a genius capacity to make it make sense. Or we enjoy it. The reality is that sin is attractive because it feels and tastes good. But sin fully birthed is death. But it often takes a minute to get there, and it's fun on the way. Or number four, we punish ourselves. So we seek some form of atonement that could show up in the form of self-hatred or striving. Oftentimes, what do we do with our guilt? When the pain of our own shame is more than we can bear, we end up pointing our fingers at somebody else. It's their fault that I am this way. It's my parents. It's my wounds. It's my Enneagram type. It's your fault. We blame to cover our shame. Or lastly, we set up our own system of do's and don'ts that we can live up to. A ranking of sin that so often we find, surprisingly, the things we struggle with are lower on that list than the things that everyone else around us struggles with. At least I'm not fill in the blank. Now that is disturbing and disgusting. I'm glad it's not me. Or God must really hate those fill in the blank. But here is the climax of the passage. At this point, if you're a good Jewish reader, you're feeling pretty good. If you've lit, lined up your religious life to follow all the do's and don'ts of your understanding of what it makes to, takes to make God happy, you're feeling pretty good until you get to chapter 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. The huge blind spot that Paul is addressing is that in the brokenness of this world, we all find ourselves broken. And in our brokenness, we can't even see our own brokenness. 
that it's way easier to point out the struggles and the pain and the failures of the people around us than to honestly address the things going on inside of us. And when we read these passages, we find ourselves pointing fingers at somebody else or using this to weaponize our argument against somebody else. We are missing Paul and we are missing the gospel because we all find ourselves at the foot of the cross. Regardless of what's going on inside of us, regardless of what we've done, regardless of where we are, we are all invited to walk with Jesus towards wholeness and freedom, and wholeness and freedom is only found in Jesus. In verse 4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And so this morning, as we process a happy, happy chunk of scripture, where does God have you? And maybe what you need to confess and repent of is the ways that you have judged and condemned others the ways that you've placed yourself over and above any other human, the ways that you've justified and rationalized your own struggle and sins while condemning and convicting the struggles and the hurts of somebody else, whether that's an individual or, an, or a people group. And the invitation is to come to the cross, to come to that place that our sin dies. And it's when we come to the cross together that God can actually begin to form in us the kind of community from which he can launch the power of his gospel out to the rest of the world. But if we allow ourselves to be divided and disgusted because of our moral judgments against somebody else without us first finding ourselves at the feet of Jesus, all we're going to do is continue to extend the brokenness and the division of the world around us. When what this world needs is Jesus. And what Jesus did when confronted with the brokenness and the hurt of this world is that he opened his arms wide and he laid down his life and he died. So where is God inviting you to come to the cross? And where is God inviting you to walk with him towards wholeness and freedom so that you, by his grace, can walk with others towards wholeness and freedom? So we're going to take communion as we worship together. Communion, this powerful act that Jesus gave as a physical representation of this spiritual reality. As Jesus took that bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. And every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. That in communion, in the taking of the bread, we remember the presence of Christ with us. The presence of Christ for us. The love of God revealed in Jesus on the cross. And we take from that common loaf because as we take that bread, we recognize it's not just the presence of God with me and for me. It's the presence of God with you 
and for you. And that we kneel at the foot of the cross together. And then Jesus took that cup and he said, this cup is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, the blood of a new covenant, a new invitation into relationship with the God that we turned our backs on. The washing and the forgiving of the things that we have done and the things that have been done to us in the same way we take from a common cup because it's not just the forgiveness of God for me, it's the forgiveness of God for you. That we forgive because we have been forgiven. And maybe there's some things that you need to make right in your heart with God or in your heart with somebody else before you take communion. But I want to pray for us. We're going to worship together. And we're just going to create space for God, the word of God to make its home in our heart. And I want to also leave with this thought. I know we touched on a lot of things. And we touched on a lot of things that are incredibly complicated. And, and, and for some of you are incredibly painful. There are things that some of you are struggling with, have wrestled with, are looking for answers on. There are some things that in your family that people have come to you that you just don't know how to walk with them on. And again, Paul was not offering pastoral advice. He was making an indictment of human brokenness. But if anything is being stirred up in you, come talk to me. Come talk to one of our elders. Come talk to one of our, our leaders, our staff people. You don't need to walk through whatever you're walking through alone. We can trust the Holy Spirit. I can trust the Holy Spirit at work in you. And I can trust the Holy Spirit at work in this world. And we can learn to follow Jesus together. That's what we're called to do. That's what the church is meant to be. So whatever this is stirring up in you, and I would encourage you to, don't send me a long email telling me why I was wrong. Invite me to a cup of coffee and let's talk. And if you really want to tell me why I'm wrong, make sure that you have read Romans and that you know it before we sit down. That sounded a little judgy. <laughs> but I mean it. <laughs> I'm tired of Facebook arguments. Let's dig into the Bible. All right, Lord Jesus, we need you. I need you. Goodness gracious, Lord, I'm a mess. We're all messes. God, thank you. God, thank you. I think back to just kneeling with Greg in eighth grade and knowing that you were there for me, that you loved me, and the thought, that simple thought that, Jesus, that's true. If, that, if that's how you love me, then I'm in. And that you've been faithful on that every day since. God, I can remember laying on my face after committing what I thought was the worst sin <laughs> and you picking me back up. God, I, coming to you and even seeing the ways that the pain or the things that I still struggle with, that you're so faithful, God. And I know for each everyone here, Lord, we all have our junk. We all need the cross. And I pray, give us the courage and the honesty to take that to you, Lord, that you'll meet us there, that we can trust you. And so, Lord, as we take communion, may it not just be this religious act, God, may it be an act of faith that you are with us, that you are for us, 
that your blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins and that the gospel is the power of salvation for all who believe. Lead us forward. In your name we pray.